we get to continue in our sermon series through the letter to the Hebrews, and so I want to invite you to grab a Bible and open it up, please, to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. While you're finding that passage, I actually want to read the last verse in chapter 8 just to prepare us for the reading of God's word. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And now the first 14 verses of chapter 9. Please follow along as I read from God's word. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tables of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly, regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second only, the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he, Christ, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, through, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Hear the word of the Lord. So with your Bibles open, I, I want you to look again. I want to start at the end of the passage. 
There's so much here, but the end really, I hope, will help us gain better understanding of what comes before. So here, verses 13 and 14 again. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. I hope you can see the contrast that's being made. There were, there were ceremonial sacrifices, sacrificial offerings made, duties performed that would, would purify the outward, the flesh. And you can say that's looking at the old. And when we look at the new this is penetrating to the inner, the most inner parts of our being, our hearts, our consciences. The work of Christ has, has gone way beyond just the purification of the outward and actually doing a work that only he could accomplish on our hearts and our souls. So much so that there is a purifying of our consciences from dead works to actually serve the living God. And so the, the title of my sermon this morning is just simply Purified by Christ. And we're going to look at some of the old and some of the new, and by doing so, I pray that the Holy Spirit helps us see once again how much better Jesus is. The whole thrust of the book is for Hebrew Christians who are being tempted because of what they see and experience to go back to the old. They see the temple worship still happening in their midst at this time. They see all the intricate workings, inner workings of all that happens within Judaism that seems like it still has much to offer when they are being persecuted, being stripped of their belongings, gathering in small little places with probably dim lights, hiding at some points to worship together as part of the way, Christians. And while they're seeing with their eyes something very different from those who are still experiencing the old, the writer to the Hebrews is saying, please, brothers and sisters, you have to understand how much better it is in Christ. To return to the old would actually be to, to be uh, really kind of deconstructing all that Christ has accomplished in fulfillment of all the old. Remember, brothers and sisters, shadows and copies of what we see in substance in what the Lord Jesus has accomplished. Now, what I also want us to do in beginning is to, as we're thinking about the purification of our consciences, to just think for a moment, and I hope that you can affirm this reality there is a problem that every man and woman, little girl, little boy, all people, that's, that's to say everybody exhaustively, has a problem outside of Christ with a dirty conscience. And so this passage really is drilling down into saying, how can people with a stained conscience actually draw near to God? The conscience, according to one Puritan, Richard Sibbs, who wrote this in the 17th century, simply put, is the soul reflecting upon itself. 
conscience is at the heart of what distinguishes the human creature from all other creatures. People, unlike animals, can contemplate their own actions and make moral self-evaluations. So when you think about your conscience, we feel guilt and conviction when we do things that are wrong, and we can feel joy and comfort when we do things that are right. I also want you to note this. Everyone has a conscience, even non-Christians who have not yet been born of the Spirit. And so how can people with a stained conscience draw near to God? Most here today know exactly what I'm talking about when I refer to your conscience being dirty, being stained. If you don't, let me just give you a few examples by Sam Storms, who has written about the conscience uh, at great length in, in some spots. This is what he says, and this is just to get our minds thinking about our conscience. What you feel and sense deep within as you lie on your bed at night and reflect back on the events of the day, the harsh words you spoke to your kids, the lie that you told your boss hoping to gain advancement, the pride you felt in your heart when someone praised your efforts, what you feel and sense deep within when you wake up in the morning and begin to have lustful thoughts and sinful fantasies are racing through your mind. And you know that's not what you should be dwelling upon. What you feel and sense deep within when you navigate your way through day, throughout the day without giving God so much as an afterthought. What you feel and sense deep within when you reflect on your life as a whole and all you see is one failure after another, one shattered dream after another, one devastating relationship after another, one sin after another. What you feel and sense deep within, when you consider how infinitely holy and pure and righteous God is, and how immeasurably unholy and impure and unrighteous you are. What you feel and sense deep within as you try to figure out what you can do to bridge the gap between you and God. What you can say or promise to God or make up in front of God so that he will love you and accept you. What happens in your heart when you finally realize that not all the good works in the world, all the ways in which you've served, maybe in a charitable way, the united way, spent Dave serving in a soup kitchen, none of that will ever enable you to measure up. What do we do when we begin to think about our past sins, our present failings, and our future judgment, and realize that we need something to give us inward rest and peace? All of that is to help us think about having a stained conscience before the Lord. There is a burden and there is a guilt upon our conscience when we are, when we are dabbling, when we are participating in sin and know that that is not right. Isn't it remarkable 
that the basic problems of life never change. For the people in the Old Testament, for the people in the New, and for us today, the circumstances may change, but the basic problems do not change. We are humans. God has created us to have consciences that witness to our sinfulness and really give testimony of real guilt. In our passage, if you remember me reading in verses 8 and 9, there are two references to time and the movement of God in history. If you heard the phrase, the present age and the time of Reformation, there are two distinct ages or periods of time that the author is trying to help the readers, the first recipients of this letter understand, and even us today. So the present age sounds like he's talking about maybe th their present or even our present, but, but actually in reality, the present age that he is referring to is the way, according to verse 9, the way the Israelites approached God in worship and sacrifice in the Old Covenant. He does so by, in really the first seven verses, giving us a description of the way in which one would come to God and really highlighting on how limited, how limited that way was. Past tense, okay? So the first seven verses, he, he begins to just share with people who are very familiar, but for us probably seems very foreign, the way in which people approached God in, in worship and sacrifice. And if you don't really catch anything else, really the theme of these seven verses is to highlight how limited access to God really was. So let's just spend a few moments looking at this. First, there's this description of a golden lamp, a golden lampstand, and really this is describing first one section of the tabernacle, and then we're going to get into the Holy of Holies, the inner part of the tabernacle. There was a golden lampstand is one of the descriptions, and it makes sense that there would be lamp because there was no window or um, electricity, obviously, within the tabernacle. And a priest was designated to go in morning and evening to trim the lampstand to supply the oil needed to keep that light burning in the tabernacle day and night. Second, we see a description that there was a table and on this table was placed bread. It referred to, it's referred to as the bread of the presence. So there were, there were 12 loaves placed on this table. This happened every Sabbath. And at the end of each week, the old bread would be eaten by the priests because it was considered holy. The third item, and this is a little confusing in the way that the ESV translates this. It, it sounds like this is in the Holy of Holies, but really there was a third item in the holy place, this first section of the tabernacle, the golden altar of incense. The reason why we know that specifically is we see it in the, the Old Testament, uh, Exodus chapter 27 and chapter 30. But if you just think about this, we're about to be told that in the Holy of Holies, the great high priest or the high priest can only enter once a year and the the daily duties of the priest the levitical priests that happened day in and day out involved this golden altar of incense so daily they they burned incense on the altar 
of incense. That was the holy place. And to kind of root this in some, some New Testament scripture, if you look at the beginnings of the gospel, this was a place where the tribe of Levi would, would enter and perform their duties. And we're told in Luke's gospel that a priest named Zacharias was actually serving in this part of the tabernacle, the holy place, at the altar of incense when, if you recall, an angel appeared to him and announced that his wife Elizabeth would conceive and give birth. And we know that that is the offspring would be uh, John the Baptist. And so that kind of helps give a, a visual from, from Luke's gospel of, of what, was, what, was, what it looked like, what was happening in this holy place portion of the tabernacle. And then in our text, we're told then the most holy place, or the holy of holies, was separated. This is important details, even if it seems foreign to us. It was separated off from the holy place by a thick, beautiful curtain. Rich colors embroidered on this, this curtain. And there was this stark separation between the holy place and the holy of holies. The Holy of Holies contained the Ark of the Covenant. And we're told in this brief description in verses 1 through 5 that there were some things placed within it. We're told that there was this golden urn that contained some manna. And this also helps us. Before the destruction of the temple in 587 B.C., we're told this description of the tabernacle still had the Ark of the Covenant, still had this, this portion or this piece of of manna that had fallen from heaven to feed the Israelites for them to remember. It also had Aaron's rod that had, that, uh, had blossomed and the, the, table, the, tables of, the tablets of stone, which were the Ten Commandments. We know after the destruction of the temple, those things were no longer present when the, temple was, the second temple was constructed. But this, this helps us understand this present age that the author is trying to help us see what was what it used to be like, and what these shadows and copies represented. So we're, we're moving in that direction. So he's describing the Holy of Holies. And just to give a little bit more detail, this was this, this Ark of the Covenant. We've, we've talked about this previously. It was a slab of pure gold on top of it called the mercy seat. And we give the, get this little description. It fit right on top of the Ark, and, and we see these cherubims, these specific special class of angelic beings facing each other in, in or on top of the mercy seat. And really, this was, this was to help those believers understand and us understand that this was, this was God's holy, glorious presence. In Exodus 25, we read this, There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony, I will speak with you. So here's the question. If you're going, what's the point of the details? So what did the tabernacle and its furniture and the activities that took place within it, within the, the holy place and the most holy place, what did it symbolize? What are we supposed to learn from it all? Just a couple of things. First, everything that is described by God to his people to build this tabernacle and then the temple, all the details, 
really are a visual sermon proclaiming the glory and the beauty of the Lord. Like, why all the gold? Why the specific dimensions? What about each piece? Just here, this is a, this is a visual illustration or a sermon that is proclaiming the excellencies of this God who redeemed a people. It really emphasizes his glory, and it also emphasizes his holiness. It all pointed to the holiness of God. It was a constant reminder. They could see, and they could see that they couldn't go past a certain point. And they surely knew what what was happening every day of atonement annually, what was happening with that high priest as he went in. They were so aware that this all reflected the holiness of God. Secondly, the tabernacle and everything in it, really for the people, was a daily reminder of their own sinfulness. The divisions, the separation, all of it, all all the duties of the priests highlighted the sinfulness of the people. How holy God is and how sinful man is. So in a sense, everything about the tabernacle shouted, you need to stay away. You may not draw near. If you come near, outside the bounds in which I have ordained, you will die. The the seriousness of this sermon being proclaimed about the holiness and the beauty and the glory of God and the sinfulness was helping the people understand that they were in great need. Hebrews 9, 7, but into the second only the high priest goes and he but once a year and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. What do you think the author means by the unintentional sins of the people? Most are probably familiar as Christians that there are two two categories of sins that we typically refer to when we think about sin. Maybe this is kind of new for you, but it's important to know there are sins of commission and sins of omission. So when you think about sinning before the Lord, the first category, we sin by commission, by doing deliberate acts, committing specific sins. Second, we we sin by omission fail to do what God has called us to do. So with commission, we blatantly do what we know we ought not to do. For me growing up, that was my my grasp of, okay, I'm doing pretty good as long as I don't break those laws that seem really bad that God has said, do not do. As long as I'm not stepping over that line, I'm a pretty good kid. When you see the full breadth of the sinfulness of man, it is not only what sins you commit, but all the the things that you are supposed to do that you don't. Sins of omission. When, When my mind and heart grabbed hold of the reality of the comprehensiveness of my sinfulness, both in sins of commission and sins of omission, that made... God even greater and more holy and me understanding just how depraved I really am and in need of a savior. And here the author is 
for those receiving this, we're, we're familiar with this category. For some of us, we may not be. Sins that are unintentional. So there is a third category that we need to be aware of, introduce into our understanding of sin. This unintentional sin is helpful for us as well to think about. So this third category of sin, just for a moment, unintentional sins are those we commit without realizing that we are even committing them. How many times have you gone through the day and thought, man, I did pretty good. I didn't do this, this, and this that I know I've been maybe struggling with. And the, the things that I was supposed to do, I felt like I really did. I really served my wife well today. And then there may be a whole other category where in thought, word, and deed have slipped your mind and you did not even realize unintentionally sinning before God. Now, when this third category is also introduced, I hope this morning you can see that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. You may have walked in thinking, man, I'm pretty good. When I read the news and hear about the things happening, what other people are doing, and start comparing myself to them, I'm all right. Maybe I'll be okay with this God if I were to die this afternoon. When you see and sit under God's word and your heart is actually revealed that you have not only sinned against God with the sins of commission, breaking his law, sinning in, in, with the sins of omission, not doing what you ought to do, and then all the unintentional sins that you aren't even aware of that you have sinned against God. May the Holy Spirit give you eyes to see your need for a Savior. And so these unintentional sins of the people were actually, were actually of focus in the, 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 the high priest's work on the Day of Atonement. It required blood sacrifice. But with all of this said, in the Old Covenant sacrificial system, their consciences were never fully and finally and forever cleansed of the uh, defiling power of guilt that was the result of sin. What was happening is what, what we see in Scripture is after all the work of the priests, on the outside they were clean, so to speak. They were cleansed, they were purified, and able then to participate in sacrifice and worship. But that was never drilling to the heart or the conscience. There was always still a stained conscience before the Lord. And so the author is helping them see, and I pray us as well, that all in the old was always pointing forward. In and of itself, it was never meant to, to clean or to, to remove the guilt or, or remove a stained conscience. It was always for the people to say, this is a copy. This is a shadow pointing to a reality to come. And so the whole point of the book of Hebrews is to say that in the coming of Christ, the Son of God, the present time, what was happening of old, the old way of relating to God, when Christ came was the introduction to the beginning of the Reformation, this other term of time that we see in our passage. The Reformation where Christ himself replaces the high priest. He is now the great high priest, and he replaces the temple and the blood of animals and the food and the drink rituals. Everything 
encompassing the ceremonial law, the sacrifices are all fulfilled in Christ in this, this time of the Reformation. Some of us think, okay, we look back 500 years ago and we, we're champions of the Reformation. I want to encourage us to look even further back and understand the only reason why there was ever a Reformation in the 1500s is because there was a Reformation because of Christ's work and coming and becoming our great high priest. So all of the old, this present time, was, was pointing to the glories of Christ and his work. So now as we look at verses 11 through 14, really the, the heart of understanding the Reformation, the time of the Reformation, just listen to how verse 11 starts. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. So the author of this letter is saying the present time was, was the old and now the Reformation. But when Christ appeared, the shadow points to the substance. Now, what he's going to say in these verses, they tie, they connect with the present time, the old. Everything in the old mattered. So it's not as though those of us who are united with Christ in the new covenant just throw away the old and think that there's nothing in the Old Testament, the old covenant, that can help us in our walks with the Lord, not at all. And unfortunately, this last week, while interacting with some of friends of the family who were grieving, there was talks about Scripture, and one person in particular was just saying, you know, I, I don't want any more of the Old Testament. I only want the new. Now, you just want to say, bless your heart. I know what you're saying. You, you don't want to hear about all the death and the old and the wrath of God poured out in, in real vivid ways. But, but sister, you're missing. You will not fully grasp the new unless you understand all that God was doing in the old. None of it, none of it is, is thrown to the wayside like it doesn't matter. It is all pointing to and helping us understand the gospel and we're going to see this as we continue working through Hebrews. The gospel, and I've said this before, is like the most beautiful diamond with so many facets to it. When you start turning a beautiful diamond, you're seeing a whole new angle and beauty of that same diamond, but from a different perspective. And when we see these details that seem foreign to us of the old, but then actually understand from Scripture what Christ has done in fulfilling and what they were pointing to. Oh, the beauty of the gospel. You can just keep turning it and savoring Christ in it as we see how in verses 11 through 14, all the things in the old, they meant a lot, they mattered, but they were simply a shadow of what was to come. So one, one author wrote, In the Lord of the Rings... The doors of Durin bar entrance into Moria under the Misty Mountains. In the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, a mysterious wardrobe grants or prevents entrance into Narnia. There's, there's, there's a way in 
that either is allowing someone into these places or preventing them from coming in. There's a, a wall or a door. Maybe a little bit more recent in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, there's a three-headed giant dog named Fluffy that blocks entrance into the underground chambers. There is something in the way. A key feature of these stories is a barrier between the person and where they want to go or the people and where they want to go. In the story of Israel, the most vivid instance of this same type of theme, this barrier, is really seen in what has been described with the holy place and the holy of holies. There is a separation. There is this thick curtain that only, only once a year can the high priest even enter past this point. No one else for under any circumstance or reason can go past this. There is a barrier. And in verse 12, we read that Christ entered once for all into the holy places. So that holy of holies, what had always separated sinful man from the presence and enjoyment of a holy and righteous God, was put on display visually for the people of Israel in just even how the tabernacle was arranged. Now, how did Christ make a way? What happened? What changed? What makes this time the time of Reformation versus the present time? A series of events took place on Calvary's cross as Jesus was being crucified. As Jesus breathed his last, please remember, in descriptions in the Gospels, there was darkness over all the earth. In Matthew 27, for example, and behold, when there was this darkness over all the earth, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. Now, I want to submit to you that everything, every detail of the tabernacle mattered for you to understand what Christ actually accomplished at the cross. That tearing of the curtain was for all of humanity to hear this sound, this proclamation, where once there was a divide, a barrier, no way for us to approach God, to be made right with God, because of the eternal Son of God's work on the cross, now, now there's a way. Now we who are once far off can be brought near. Now we who have guilty, stained consciences can actually be cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. We have access to the Father through the work of the Son. And so the overturning of the Old Covenant infrastructure prepares for this new era, this new covenant, the time of Reformation. We now have access. The earthly veil is torn. The heavenly veil is opened. And so this is going back several chapters in Hebrews, but Hebrews 6, 19 said this to us, and I, I pray that we now have clearer vision to see and ears to hear what was being said by the author. 
we have, in verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Do you all, do you all, do you all remember that? A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. We have a hope because now we can enter in because of our union with Christ. Here, verses 13 and 14 again of chapter 9. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Okay, I really am going to try to wrap this up. Hear this. If the shadow purifies the flesh, how much more does the truth, the Son, purify the soul? Okay, taking us back to what was happening on the Day of Atonement. This is so important. We've talked about this before, but I want to just rehearse this briefly. It was that time, once a year, when the high priest would enter into the tabernacle. But please remember, he had to do some things to even go inside. So there were three animals involved, if you remember. There was uh, two goats and a cow. The bull. The bull was sacrificed for his own sin. The two goats were also brought in. So this is where it gets really good. So these two, the two goats were brought in. One goat was killed, and then its blood was sprinkled on top of the ark. Remember the, the mercy seat description? That really actually translates the place of propitiation. We've talked about this before. The place where God's wrath is appeased. It's satisfied. So there requires blood to satisfy God's wrath. This is all pointing forward. Remember, this goat was just a symbol. We, we hear later in Hebrews that, that animals can't save you. The blood of animals isn't what actually saves you, but it, it was simply a, a sign pointing forward to the blood of the unblemished lamb, Jesus Christ, who would be slain for us. Okay, so this first, this first goat was, was killed. The blood was, was, was poured over, and that would represent the, the it would be really the representative. This, this animal is dying in the place as a substitute for the people. They would all recognize this. Okay, first, we know this high priest, he isn't really anything different from us other than he's been called by God to be a high priest out of the tribe of Levi. His sins need to be covered by this bull that's being slaughtered. Next, we understand the only way for us to be purified, even on the outside, is for this goat to be slain and his blood to be poured out for us as a representative. And then there's this third goat. The third goat was not killed. Hands were laid upon it. It was called the scapegoat. Hands were laid upon it, and then it was released to, to, to flee, to leave, which would represent what, what we have before God as guilty, stained sinners. This scapegoat and the fleeing, the going away, is representing that our sins can actually be, be removed. Now, now hear this. Charles Simeon was born in the 18th century. He remembered well his conversion to Christ. It happened as he read about what happened on the Day of Atonement. When the high priest laid his hands on the scapegoat, 
symbolizing the transfer of guilt from the people of Israel onto this goat as the goat left. The thought came into his mind, he says, what may I transfer all my guilt to another? Has God provided an offering for me that I may lay my sins on his head? Then, God willing, I will not bear them on my soul one moment longer. Accordingly, this is him talking, I sought to, to lay my sins upon the sacred head of Jesus. All the details matter because they help us understand that we have a scapegoat. Those who have repented of their sins and believe upon Christ will be saved. Your guilt can be laid upon his head. The eternal Son of God did that for sinners like us, for me. All, yes, amen, all of this matters. The present age and the age of Reformation help us glory in the gospel. Help us see the riches of the new covenant that was made possible by his blood. When your conscience rises up and condemns you, where do you turn? This passage, verse 14 in Hebrews chapter 9, gives the answer. Turn to Christ. Turn to the blood of Christ. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? If you are an unbeliever here this morning, I plead with you, urge you to turn to Christ and receive this gift that he has given. He has given and bought at an infinite price. It is a gift of perfect forgiveness, perfect cleansing by the shedding of his blood. And then lastly, for the believers, I want you to hear the end of this passage. The end of the passage speaks about doing away with, leaving dead works, and actually serving the living God. So John Calvin writes this, We are not cleansed by Christ so that we can immerse ourselves continually in fresh dirt, but in order that we may have purity and may serve God. This is a beautiful invitation, encouragement, I pray, exhortation for the believer. It does not just end with, okay, now I do not have a guilty conscience. That's, that's not the end. God, before the foundation of the earth, has called a people to himself. If you are in Christ, before the foundation of the earth, he knew you. And before the foundation of the earth, he had ordained good works for you, for his glory and others' good, so that we may walk in them. We may walk in a manner that is worthy of our calling. This cleansing of our guilty conscience, I don't know about you, but if you're aware 
of whether you have a clean conscience or a guilty conscience, it impacts every part of your life. If you are walking in sin, unrepentant sin, you're doing things you know you ought not to do or not doing the things that you know you should do, even as believers, you can be carrying just a guilty conscience. But by God's grace and the help of the Spirit, when you're walking in obedience, I hope you can testify to this. There is a beautiful aspect of the Christian life when you actually experience a clean conscience before the Lord. And there's joy and there's comfort. Now, this is not talking about losing your salvation. No, no, we're talking in the realm of sanctification here when you've already been justified by the work of Christ. You're in Christ. Now, as we walk, understand that this cleansing that Christ has given us in, in our salvation is a cleansing we need daily as we walk according to his will. And there is the beautiful hope here in verse 14 that it is, it is actually all happening so that we could live lives that serve God. So we've been invited by grace into his kingdom, not to just sit back, relax, and let him do everything, but he sees fit to use weak and broken vessels like us to to expand his kingdom work here on earth, in our families, in our marriages, with our children, our neighbors, in this church, this, this town, this city, this state, we are invited in to be part of his kingdom work, to serve the living God. So unbelievers, may you experience the cleansing of your conscience in Christ. For believers, may you understand that the work of Christ was not just a one-time thing, but as our high priest, he is working and interceding on our behalf even now so that we might serve God with a clear conscience. Purified by Christ, let us pray. Father, we praise you for your word, for your goodness, for the hope and joy that is found in the work of your Son. Father, we plead with you that this would be the day of salvation for those who are standing before you burdened with guilt and shame. May they have eyes to see the kingdom of God, see the one who has come to ransom and save the lost. May Christ be exalted in this place from his children's mouths and for those who turn to him in belief this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.